Hey, it's me, Taylor Owen. We're off for the holidays, but I wanted to bring you a couple of my favorite episodes from last season. So today, a repeat of my conversation with the Bishop of Oxford, Stephen Croft. This might be one of my favorite conversations, not just on the podcast, but ever. We'll be back with new episodes on January 6th. In the meantime, here's my chat with Stephen Croft. The world needs a very big conversation about this, and it cannot be a conversation simply between those who are developing the technology and the technical people. It needs to be a big moral and ethical conversation. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. Over the course of the past year, I've been taking part in an international working group on data governance, organized by a London think tank, the Ada Loveless Institute. Every month or so, we do a big Zoom call with experts from all over the world. And with all the faces on my screen, there's always one little square that stands out. The one that belongs to Stephen Croft. Stephen is the Bishop of Oxford. So the main reason he sticks out is because he wears a clergy robe and clerical collar. But the contribution he makes to these calls is through his focus on humanity. A focus less on tech itself and more on the ways the human experience is being touched by technology. In policy conversations that are often very technocratic, Stephen is deeply philosophical. He spent decades thinking about life's big questions, like what does it mean to be human? What does real community look like? And how does spirituality shape our lives? And now he's bringing that thinking into the technology conversation. And as a former member of the Artificial Intelligence Committee in the House of Lords, and current board member of the Center for Data Ethics and Innovation, Stephen isn't just thinking about tech policy, he's actively shaping it. After centuries of religious dogma, it often feels like we now live in an era of technological dogma. We talk about tech companies being too big to fail. We debate whether AI or biotech will supplant the human mind and body. And the Elon Musks and Steve Jobs of the world have cultivated almost godlike personas. 300 years ago, it was science that posed the challenge to religious authority. Now, the tech companies are the ones with the power and are using it to push into spaces and conversations that were once the domain of religious institutions. Stephen uses precisely this historical and spiritual framing to challenge that power and to demand that we think more holistically and even humanely about technology. Here's Stephen Croft. So I want to start sort of very broad here, and Mm. I think a lot of people would be at least somewhat surprised or intrigued that the Bishop of Oxford Oxford is, is an expert on technology and increasingly on technology regulation even. Um, and some might even think that science and technology are incompatible with religion. Um, mm. and there have been moments in history where there's been real tension there. Um, so I'm wondering how you think about that relationship. Yeah, no, I, uh, for me, it's all about uh, what it means to be human and human identity. So my way into this whole uh, uh, area was through one of my sons. I have, um, 
I have four adult children. They all do something different. But my eldest son is a computer games entrepreneur. Mm. He set up a computer games company with a colleague uh, when he left university. So uh, about four or five years ago, uh, he gave me a book to read that he'd been reading uh, by a guy called Kevin Kelly, uh, called The Inevitable. Kevin Kelly is a, a former editor of Wired magazine. And uh, I, I dipped into this and I came across this astonishing paragraph, which kind of leapt out at me, uh, which was uh, uh, that actually the real challenge of digital and artificial intelligence over the next 20 or 30 years was going to be asking questions of human identity and what it means to be human. Uh, and one of the questions machines were going to provoke uh, was, was what it means to be human uh, and human flourishing. And uh, as I read that paragraph, I, it sort of piqued my curiosity um, uh, and made me ask a series of hard questions. And in particular, made me think that if this technology was going to be all pervasive and all across the world and have huge ramifications, then uh, the Christian faith, which is my own tradition, had something to say to that. Because we've been thinking and reflecting about what it means to be human and about human flourishing for uh, 2,000 years and more in the Jewish and Christian tradition. So I began cautiously to explore this portfolio of technology and the regulation of technology and data. Served on the House of Lords Committee on uh, Select Committee on Artificial Intelligence and the Future, which was a massive learning experience uh, and kind of sat in a room for three hours every Wednesday for a year uh, uh, with a chance to hear from and to ask questions of the leading experts uh, in the UK on this field. Uh, my brain kind of <laughs> exploded every Wednesday afternoon uh, uh, and a huge learning curve. Uh, but it became apparent through that inquiry, not just through my uh, input, but the whole committee concluded that actually ethics uh, needed to be lifted up within dialogue about artificial intelligence and data. And that was one of our principal conclusions. And then I've served since then on the UK government's Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, uh, um, uh, trying to map the, uh, what needs regulating and what doesn't and what the real questions are. And I, and I definitely want to talk to you about the regulatory piece. Um, mm. But I want to lose this notion of both what it means to be human and the historical arc of um, theology engaging with that question. Mm, um, mm. Could you have there been previous moments where that question has been peaked, where something has been introduced in the world that has fundamentally challenged theological mm. notions of humanity? Well, well, I think I, I think technology changes the way we relate to one another, and that is relationship is at the heart of our humanity, mm. um, and. Uh, I think the era which is probably most similar to the present era historically is the introduction of the printing press and the change that happened in technology there where there was a sudden democratization of knowledge mm. and that affected the world in profound ways uh, in the history of Christian theology. It's the era of Martin Luther and uh, John Calvin and uh, Thomas Cranmer and the other reformers that changed the political map of Europe, all flowed from uh, a change in technology in the way we communicate with each other. It's not too much to say that the world is living through a similar 
democratization of technology and a change of, of relationships. Uh, and that certainly affects the life of faith communities and churches hugely, but also the way in which they're able to speak into and listen to their wider communities, make their resources available uh, and have those resources challenged. Um, so it's not so much that the technology challenges the fundamentals of particular uh, faiths or philosophies. It's more that uh, there's an opening up uh, and a democratization of, of dialogue, mm. which is really helpful. Uh, and the faith voices are needed as part of that rich human dialogue going forward. And and perhaps in the past have sta have helped stem some of the turmoil that was a consequence of that democratizing yeah. of information. Yeah. I mean, you look at the printing press, that was a time of pretty significant uncertainty and instability in the world, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yes, it was, uh, uh, and lots of change, really. And so uh, finding moderation uh, through that and, and humanizing mm. uh, what is happening through technology is, is really important. Of course, change churches were not and are not perfect communities, and, and there were bad mm. consequences of that mm. engagement as well. Of but, but, but the present uh, fourth industrial re revolution, the kind of technology which is happening is, is challenging really fundamentals of, of the way human identity is bounded, uh, the way we let um, technology companies into our inmost lives mm. and the way that affects our sense of who we are and, and our community, mm. the way we're never uh, uh, switching off if we're not careful from uh, the wider world yeah. uh, affects us hugely, particularly when uh, identity is being formed in children uh, and young people, uh, uh, the world of work is changing hugely because of technology. So there are so many areas where technology is changing human life and human society uh, that it's it's important to have a big conversation across the whole of society about about where we're going and what that, what that's for. So I wonder if the conversation around AI, which explicitly uses the mimicking of the human mind and has a pretense of sentiency ultimately at its core, or at mm. least an objective of one day <laughs> achieving human-like characteristics. Mm. Has that turbocharged this technology conversation in your world? I mean, it's, it feels like it's very different than just talking about platforms or cell phones or whatever it might be, or the changing nature of work. I mean, AI is striking right at the core of that human question, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it has. Although my perception of how that is happening has shifted as I've explored the world of AI and data. I think when I began the journey um, four years ago, seriously, uh, what, as it were, kept me awake at night were the possibilities of artificial general intelligence and uh, the uh, the stuff of science fiction, really, um, uh, and sentient machines and what that would do to our sense of humanity. So that intrigued me and hooked me into it. But as I explored that further, it seems to me that uh, the prospect of those kinds of breakthroughs are really very, very, very distant indeed in terms mm -hmm. of the technology. And what began to keep me awake at night, though, was the... Uh, stealthy uh, adoption of narrow artificial intelligence mm. across quite specific uh, fields which were not being monitored or governed or, or supervised and weren't necessarily being thought about. 
So questions about what happens to our data, uh, questions about um, uh, the automation of uh, tasks and work, and particularly algorithmic decision-making in very sensitive areas of human life, such as uh, the courts or financial or human resources uh, without governance. Uh, and they seem to me to be fundamentally affecting people's freedoms. And then we had the debates about the uh, uh, role of the tech platforms in democracy and democratic debate, which mm. is still hugely current. Mm. So it seemed to me that all of those uh, AI-driven technologies which were using data were putting immense power in the hands of individuals, which was largely unaccountable power. And that was something to be concerned about for the whole of society. Yeah, and, th and those are, that's interesting, because those are societal questions and democratic questions and they community are, yeah. questions. They aren't just yeah. about our intrinsic human humanity or what it means to be human. So you, you start, it seems like you and some of these technologists were starting mm. at this core principle, but then it became a, about these so many other things. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and the, the ramifications just kind of spin out. And, and one of the core reflections has been um, how is AI and how are the data technologies best deployed mm. for the common good of mm. humankind? And even to use that language is to draw on a whole tradition of Christian and particularly Roman Catholic teaching and thinking mm. about what the common good is mm. for the world and how you discern it. Uh, and acting for the good of all, not for the profit of some. Do you think these technologies can be moral or immoral? Or is, there, is it how they're deployed in society? And like, it, is it valuable to think of them through a moral lens? I think it's essential to think of them through a moral lens. I think, I think um, we have to use language quite carefully when it comes to uh, uh, discerning whether the technology itself is moral or immoral. And I think at an earlier stage in the development of the technology, it would have been much easier to say that technology itself is morally neutral. Mm. Uh, I think with the advent of algorithmic decision-making and very complex decisions being made, it's not that the technology is being intentionally immoral, but the outworking of the technology may be opaque mm. and may have unforeseen consequences which may not be moral. Mm. So, so there's a more complex equation going on now. Yeah, and morality is one frame, but also with neutrality and bias and all yeah. of those things, yeah. right? There's, there's yeah. one way or other ways of getting into that. Yeah, I know. Fairness is absolutely in the frame when it comes to morality. So, so we had a, a, a really... Um, interesting and disturbing uh, situation in the UK last summer when, uh, because of COVID, uh, uh, people couldn't uh, uh, sit their A-level examinations. Mm. And so uh, A-levels were calculated through an algorithm, but because of the way the algorithm was put together, it advantaged people who were in smaller classes mm. who didn't have the same average estimate and people who were at schools, which had historically had worse grades were also disadvantaged. And there was a public outcry uh, because of the unfairness of this algorithm, which wasn't the algorithm itself making moral choices. It was the way it was set up, was fair to the greatest number of people, but not to a number of individuals who might otherwise have been disadvantaged anyway, and was seen in the popular mind to be untrustworthy, therefore.
and that event spurred that remarkable scene of people protesting an algorithm, right? There was it a, did. That's right. Yeah, the yeah, signs yeah. against the algorithm in the story. yeah. The, the al- <laughs> well, well, the the government of the day blamed the algorithm uh, very publicly, uh, and and that, in a way, set back algorithmic decision making or or broke public trust and confidence. And the the more journeying I've done with those who are trying to develop uh, these decision-making processes for the common good, uh, the more it's become apparent that retaining public trust and confidence Mm. in the technology is absolutely critical for realizing the good that the technology can bring. Mm. I mean, AI and data processing can bring huge benefits, Mm. particularly in the areas of medicine and diagnosis, and uh, but it won't bring those benefits and we won't break through to the really good things that could be released without that transparency and good governance. And do you, do you think a religious frame could actually help how these technologies, these, these things are built by people, um, algorithms are yeah. programmed by people with incentives and objectives and subjectivities and biases. Um, could some sort of religious or moral framing help in the actual development of those tools? I think it's essential. Uh, um, uh, uh, the moral framework, I, I think the, um, uh, and I think one of the sources of morality and ethics uh, within the world is is are the great faith traditions as well as the philosophies. So 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 yes, I, I think it's essential. I, I don't think morals and ethics can be manufactured out of nothing or rediscovered. Uh, and if we don't have um, morality and ethics uh, um, at the heart of the algorithms when they're being crafted, then the unfairness will be even greater than it would otherwise have yeah, been. So they need to be a founding almost first principle to... They do, they do, they do. And all those who are involved in the development of um, algorithms and the oversight of algorithmic decision-making need an ethical foundation, absolutely, clearly. You had an article in the Church Times a few years ago that, uh, that struck me, um, and particularly a line um, that in the 19th century and for much of the 20th century, science asked hard questions of faith. Christians didn't always respond well to those questions and to the evidences of reason. In the 21st century, however, faith needs to ask hard questions once again of science. I wonder what you need what you mean by that. But first, what were those original questions that science was posing of faith, and how now should faith be questioning science? Thank you. Well, in the 19th century, um, there was a famous debate in Oxford uh, in which one of my predecessors publicly debated one of Charles Darwin's um, uh, uh, disciples uh, about the origin of the species. And uh, basically, uh, the, uh, uh, my predecessor, the then Bishop of Oxford, was opposing uh, the development of evolution as a scientific principle because it was felt to contradict both the biblical record and endanger the understanding of the dignity of the human person mm. by saying that we may in some way be descended from, from other primates. Uh, and uh, in the debate between science and faith that ensued here, it was definitely the scientists speaking to the people of faith. And certainly on this side of the Atlantic, most people of faith have come to accept the scientific accounts through evolution and uh, uh, that has not di- displaced our faith in God. That was a good uh, caveat on the Atlantic divide. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not, I know it's not the case uh, uh, across where you are. Um, but I think in the 21st century, science has now accrued 
um, a great power, and there is great power in technology. Uh, and uh, the position of faith is almost like uh, the position of some of the uh, ancient prophets in the biblical record of needing to challenge unaccountable power uh, and those who are exercising great influence over the whole world and over generations uh, without being questioned about their moral values and the framework which they're exercising. Mm. I think the technology companies need a similar challenge and mine's only one voice. Mm. Uh, among many, there are, there are plenty of people um, in the world who are articulating that challenge. Mm. Uh, but I think the speaking from a religious tradition and a Christian tradition, there's a foundation for, for doing that. Uh, are the weak being protected? Are the rights of children uh, being uh, uh, set above the rights of technology to exploit them in different ways? Uh, and I think that all of that needs good scrutiny. That analogy to prophets feels so aligned with many of the attributes of these technologies. I mean, we have it, Steve Jobs is held up as a prophet. These um, founders are often seen as being all powerful. Mm, and the mm. tools they're building are, yeah, have a pretense yeah. of prophecy, right? They, they can predict yes. our behavior and therefore be all powerful and to control yeah, yeah. us in our democracies and our, the way we yeah. behave and act. Um, Yuval Harari in Homodeus talks about um, this combined prophetic power um, almost birthing a new religion and that, mm, that mm. Silicon Valley has elements of religiosity to it. Do you mm, see that mm. emerging in this, in that culture? Uh, yeah, yes, I do. Um, uh, but, but I also see uh, themes of uh, pride and hubris and, and I, I think I would see the prophetic voices uh, more being in those who, who attempt to identify and challenge the system. So, so uh, the work of somebody like Shoshana Zuboff in trying to expose uh, surveillance capitalism and the financial models by which people uh, profit, mm. uh, the work of those who've tried to uncover uh, the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal mm. and its role in democracy. Uh, I think when anything gets too big to be challenged, it, it needs scrutiny. Mm. And I also think that um, the technology companies are not neutral when it comes to their own values. They, there is a value system at the heart of Silicon Valley and a philosophy at the heart of Silicon Valley, uh, which is about uh, individualism, which is about uh, uh, the dream of making a vast fortune, yeah. uh, uh, partly about a dream of improving the world. Uh, I recognize that. Uh, but it doesn't always have a concomitant concept of the evil and harm that can be done if technology goes wrong. And one of the fundamental ideas in the Christian tradition is the idea that um, uh, there are always uh, negative sides and bad consequences and shadow sides to people. Mm. And that potential for evil and harm needs to be recognized, which is one of the reasons why good governance uh, and scrutiny mm. and transparency are so important. Yeah, when, I mean, community and the power and strength of community is at the core of the Christian tradition. Mm. And as you say, these platforms have fostered an idea that connection and community is at the core of what they do, mm. while at the same time being very individualistic. 
I mean, they're yeah, the, indeed. The individual yeah. agency yeah. is at the core of what platforms is actually the core of what platforms enable, not necessarily connection and community. Do you think yes. they're thinking yeah. about community wrong? Like, Mark Zuckerberg loves talking about community and connection being the core of their business, but is that really what they're doing? I think they're doing much more than that. I, I don't think what they're. I think there are some parts of their ideals I want to affirm. It is good to connect people. Mm. It is good to um, open people up to diversity and different experiences, and uh, people are looking for love and for friendship and and for affirmation. Mm. But I think people need to be alert to, for example, when that desire for love and community turns into the intentional fostering of addictive behaviours uh, through through hooking people in in deeper and deeper ways, uh, when it creates uh, silos around people so they only listen to a small section of opinion when truth is distorted. Uh, so I think that the, com- the tech companies need to be continually alert to the ethics and the effects of what they're doing, and they need external scrutiny. Uh, and I, I just think it's one of the deep lessons of human history that there are always bad consequences, even of technologies which appear good, and we need to be alert to those and mitigate those. Something I really struggle with because you do get with these tools some meaningful sense of connection. I mean, they you do, they're, and, yeah. and in many ways, that's a feeling you get of mm. of mm. happiness or a, I mean, it's a visceral thing when you use yeah. these tools. And is that just superficial connection, or is there or could these technologies actually foster more meaningful community? No, I, well, well, one of the things I've observed during during the last year of lockdown is how meaningful relationships formed in through screens and mm. and tools like Zoom uh, really are. Uh, I I've been astonished. I, you know, I was used to doing a bit of video calling a year ago, but that but I you know my my working day now is spent in in a Zoom and Teams conference calls really, mm. uh, and I've really noticed how awkwardness in a room can actually extend over over a Zoom conversation mm. and also uh, prayerfulness uh, in a room in a Christian context can also, you can have a very reverent context. Mm. Uh, and I, So the power of trans- technology to transmit authentic human experience is extremely strong, especially when we have visual representations of one another as mm. well as uh, audio. Uh, and I think that is a testimony not only to the power of the technology, but to the power of our humanity and the immense uh, uh, capacity of human beings to communicate even when they're not physically present to each other. So I think all, all of that is really good, as long as it doesn't become then exploitative, addictive, one person exerting power over another. Do you give sermons over Zoom or over in virtual settings? Yeah, yeah. It's very hard to do because when you're um, preaching or leading a a worship service with a group of people, you're constantly getting feedback from how people are responding. Uh, And on a Zoom call, often you're just looking at yourself reflected back if your face is spotlighted, uh, and that can be a bit off-putting. So so it's it's challenging. There there was a conversation online the other day about whether the effect of seeing your own face in your Zoom screen 
has on the performative nature of your interactions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, no, I, I think I that really struck at something interesting that the way yeah, these tools yeah. are designed changes how we interact as people. I mean, yeah, turning no, it off makes us behave differently if we don't see ourselves. Yeah, it does. It does, and and, and I find now that audio calls are are less rich as communication experiences for the it's, most part. It, it's yeah. so funny you say that. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was consistently asking people to do audio calls instead because I was getting so sick mm. of Zoom. But now mm. I find the opposite. Now I find I, when I speak to people just on voice, it feels like something's missing. Which is yeah, awesome. indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, in, you know, in that sense, the technology has been fantastic at bringing the world together in different ways. And uh, I think the thing I miss most in the Zoom meetings I have are the conversations you have on the way into the room and the way out of the room, mm. where you get to know your colleagues as people, yeah. which all helps shape your understanding and reading of their views. I'm sure it must be possible to do that more in technology or the way meetings are structured, but, but actually allowing us to bring more of the people we are into conversations yeah. is, is, I think, what enriches those, those meetings. Yeah, and beyond the performative aspect of mm. interjecting on Zoom. I mean, that is a very yeah. singular yeah. type of social interaction. It yeah. is not yeah. the complete whole of a person. So, no, no, no. Yeah. no. So, okay, I want to switch to, a bit to the, to the policy conversation, because as you said, you have been involved in this. Um, mm. I'm wondering if, so I recently spoke to, to Ron Debert, an academic you probably know, um, who is suggesting that a policy framework might look radically different if we looked at some philosophic notions of classical classical liberalism he would argue as, as a, mm. to be embedded in them rather than sort of a neoliberalism or a sort of capitalist notion of technology which really seems to drive even a lot of our policy solutions often the idea of commodifying data and owning data is is an ideological precept um, that in many ways shapes our policy conversation mm. um, I'm wondering if religion could provide us with a different framework. And do you think when you're in these policy rooms in the House of Lords or in commissions or whatever it might be, do you think you provide a fundamentally different framework for thinking about governance? Uh, I think probably no, but that's because I'm sitting in a parliament within the United Kingdom and within a Western democracy. Yeah where the fundamental values which are broadly owned across our democracy about the best we can be uh, are actually consonant with christian faith and uh, a christian moral worldview can you just w explain what you mean by that why is that connection closer in the uk than in other countries um well well it, it may be the same in, in canada and, uh, and the united states but but the european democracies in particular it flow in a very deep sense out of the values which are formed by the Christian faith in Europe over over thousands of years. So there isn't a, a sort of conflict at the a level of the ideal. Increasingly, I found that the call for ethics in the new technologies is not a call actually for a new kind of ethical framework. It's a call to apply the generally accepted ethical framework that's the best of our society, human rights, uh, respect for the individual, uh, uh, fairness, uh, those kinds of principles, and applied across to the new technologies. So it's not the generation of a new ethics, it's the consistent application of those ethical principles 
in technologies which are completely new and different. So if I'm sitting in a room as I was uh, yesterday, uh, in a parliamentary context, I was sitting in a room with people from different political parties and none, looking at some legislation which is being developed in the UK around online harms. Mm. Uh, we were talking together about the huge range of different issues involved in online harms legislation. Mm. Uh, and there was absolutely no distinction between politicians of different parties or between people of different faith positions, actually, on the need to protect children, the need to protect uh, democracy, vast range of issues where we were not disagreeing about values, but there is a legitimate debate about how those values are carried forward mm. into legislation. And there's sometimes a different balancing of uh, free speech versus uh, 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 governance and control uh, and in one or two other areas. So I don't find myself uh, as a Christian theologian or Christian minister in those uh, uh, meetings uh, seeking to or needing to impose a set of values on people. But I do believe those values are of fundamental and prior importance. And sometimes my role within a conversation like that will be to draw people back to those first principles. Some of that online harms conversation in the UK is framed around this duty of care concept. And it is, yeah. It, that's yeah. always struck me as being more of an overarching framework and values based objective rather mm. than some of the other policy conversations you see in the EU, for example, that are very yeah. technocratic and specif yes. spec legislatively specific and legalized yeah. um, and bureaucratized almost. And duty yeah. of care yeah. is something different, isn't it? It is well. It's been articulated as a fundamental principle of the new online harms legislation the government is developing. Mm. Uh, and uh, basically that uh, the companies who are uh, developing uh, uh, software and applications need to have a duty of care to those who use their services. And it's, it's part of the answer to the question, in whose interest is this technology going to develop? Uh, and who controls it? Is it driven and controlled by those who are profiting from it? Or is it actually a service being offered for the good of the whole of society? Mm. In the course of which you know, some people will find gainful employment and make money. Uh, and I think society faces a fairly fundamental choice between those two approaches. And I want to argue kind of with every breath in my body that it should be the second of those really. <laughs> uh, and that technology which is exploitative should be governed and limited and controlled. A couple more quick questions here before we close, but one is, so I'm sure you know Jeff Jarvis well, and he has the, or know of his work, and he, he has this frame pushing back against critics of tech um, that this is just another moral panic, that mm. there's a community of people who are up in arms and righteously fighting back against a perceived evil that actually is ultimately good for people and democracy and individual mm. empowerment. Do you, how, do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I, I, just, I just disagree, I think, really, uh, because mm. of, and I disagree because of the evidence of the harm that is being done by unrestrained technology. You know, we have a, we, I don't know how things are in Canada in this, but we have a mental health crisis in this country among teenage girls, especially, but boys as well. 
Uh, and there seems no reasonable doubt uh, that that has been fed by uh, the ungoverned use of technology and the way in which uh, people are opening themselves out mm. to uh, others without personal boundaries at a critical moment of their identity formation. I think that's a real harm. I, I think we've uh, sat and uh, watched uh, uh, and wept at the events in the United States over the last few weeks where uh, it's clear from this side of the Atlantic at least that a, a country has been become divided because of the loss of common media and common acceptance of truth and a commons for debate. Mm. And that has been shaped in part and fed by uh, technology companies, uh, which have allowed the creation of bubbles in which different points of view can't be tested uh, against each other. Uh, so now I think technology fundamentally changes the way human beings relate to each other and the balances of power are disturbed by new technologies and therefore they need to be critiqued and we need the public debate. It's not in my case a, um, a caution about technology in and of itself. You know, I, I enjoy technology, I enjoy what it can do, uh, but, but it is a desire to see a balanced debate and good governance of that tech as it rolls forward. So just to close, what, what would you say to the people who are building these technologies and to the people who lead these immensely powerful companies, the Jack Dorseys, Sheryl Sandbergs, Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, if, if you were speaking to them or even giving a sermon to them, how would you frame how they should be thinking about this? Uh, I think I would say the world needs a very big conversation about this. Uh, and uh, it cannot be a conversation simply between those who are developing the technology uh, and the technical people. It needs to be a big moral and ethical conversation. And I see encouraging signs that some people developing technology are absolutely aware of this. I was at a conference in the Vatican a year ago where the Roman Catholic Church gathered people from all over the world, including uh, Brad Smith of Microsoft uh, and others, uh, and he seemed to be very aware of these different ethical dilemmas and the need to develop uh, a coherent ethics at the heart of technology. Uh, so, uh, you know, I do see some signs of hope, uh, but I would, I think, uh, the other thing I'd say to the group of people that you named just there is, uh, I think the world needs to see from them a greater awareness of potential harm uh, that can come through any technology, not just their own, uh, and a desire to mitigate that uh, as much as possible. And I know that uh, slowly, I think, uh, that message is being heard and different uh, countermeasures are being taken. And I'd want to encourage that very warmly. Well, I, I hope they're listening and I hope they're listening to you and specifically on this. Um, and thank you so much for talking to us about it. Thank you, that's great. That was my conversation with Stephen Croft. As always, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and produced by Antica Productions. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week. Thank you.